Welcome, everybody, on the podcast. My name is Dean Jones. I'm the well-seasoned librarian. This is season five, and this is episode six. Today, I'm really very happy to have on my podcast the esteemed author, Adrian Miller, who has written Black Smoke, Soul Food, and The President's Kitchen Cabinet, three excellent books that all are very wonderful historical writing that really detail um, food history and its impact on America. Um, I really enjoy getting a chance to talk to Adrian. He's very informative and very interesting. I think that um, I was lucky to have him come on the podcast. And honestly, I think I could have probably had him on three separate times and still not really even touched the surface of all of his books and the topics that he writes about. So I feel like this is almost kind of a encapsulation of his uh, career work, but I know he's working on more and he's just a wonderful writer. Uh, His books really um, are very important books and should be read by everyone. Without further ado, I want to go to the conversation. I really had a great time talking to Adrian. He was a very friendly, genial person and just a wealth of information. And he's one of the people I think you could just probably like launch into any question with him and he'd have an answer for you right off the bat. I felt very blessed to be able to talk to him, and I would love to have him come back on the podcast again, maybe even do a panel with uh, other food historians as well. That'd be kind of exciting. So without further ado, I'm going to go right to my conversation with Adrian Miller. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have on my show Adrian Miller, author of Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue, and Soul Food, the surprising story of American cuisine, one plate at a time, and The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of African-Americans who have fed our first families and the Washington, from the Washingtons to the Obamas. Adrian, thank you for being on the program. So good to be with you. Now, I want to start off asking you, you, in your bio, it says you're a recovered lawyer, and you previously worked in politics as a special assistant to President Clinton. Can you tell us about that and what that was like? Yeah, so I practiced law and it wasn't for me, man. You know, it got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office. So I figured I should do something else. So I was going to actually open up a soul food restaurant in Denver. But then a law school classmate of mine called me out of the blue and told me she was working in the Clinton White House. And she was asking me if I had any friends back in D.C. who could they get hired quickly. And I said, well, tell me about the job. And it was something called the Initiative for One America, which was an outgrowth of President Clinton's initiative on race. And essentially, the core idea was this. Um, This is going to sound really crazy. But if we could just talk to one another and listen, listen, we might realize we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So after she told me about this position, I did the same thing that Dick Cheney did when George W. Bush asked him to find a vice president. I was the head of the search committee, and my name was the only one put on the list. So I ended up going to work for uh, President Clinton at the very end of his second term um, and really enjoyed it. And the the initiative on One America was just continuing the work of racial reconciliation. Uh, So, yeah, that was a great time. Oh, very nice. Um, Now, what what brought you to become a food writer? Uh, The short answer is unemployment. So uh, I just hear that a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I just finished my job in the Clinton White House, and I was trying to get back to Colorado because at that point, my um, ultimate ambition was to be elected senator of Colorado, uh, U.S. senator. So um, I was trying to get back to Colorado. Yeah, I was trying to get back to Colorado to jumpstart my uh, political career, but the job market was really slow. 
was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. Um, and in the depth of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I um, went to the, a local bookstore and I found a book called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History, written by John Edgerton. And yeah, in that book, you wrote that the tribute. Yeah, I mean, for anybody interested in Southern food history, that's a that's a uh, a book that you have to have. It's part of the canon. Um, and in that book, he wrote that the tribute to Black achievement in American cookery has uh, yet to be written. And I thought that was really interesting. And the book was about 14 years old when I picked it up. So I just emailed him out of the blue and um, say, hey, Mr. Edgerton, you know, you wrote this a while ago. Do you still think this is true? And he said, you know, um, nobody's really done the full story. People have done pieces of it, but no one's done the full story. So there's always room for another voice. So why not yours? So that's what really launched me on this journey. Now, um, can you tell us about how you became a certified barbecue judge? Yeah, so I'm, I'm already endeavoring to write this book on the history of soul food. And because barbecue is such a part of African-American food culture, I thought I'd have a chapter dedicated to barbecue in the soul food book. So, you know, I was, I was picking up all this stuff. And then just, uh, you know, I was one day in 2004, I was reading the my local newspaper and there was an ad say, come become a barbecue judge. I was like, well, that's interesting. So I headed out to the Adams County Fairgrounds in the suburbs of Denver. And um, when I walked into the room, there was about 70 people in the room and I was the only dude under 250. So, you know, I knew what my future was gonna be like. Um, and uh, basically I thought they were gonna teach me how to cook, um, but it was really more about these, these are the logistics of a contest. So the categories are beef, which is usually brisket, chicken, which is usually chicken thighs, uh, pork spare ribs, and pork shoulder. And you base, you taste, uh, you judge the barbecue on three criteria, um, taste, texture, and appearance on a nine-point scale. So after they go through all of that, they tell you some of the rules of the competition. And some of these are quite arbitrary. So I was learning under the Kansas City Barbecue Society rules. And uh, for example, you can only, in that, um, and that certifying body, you can only present your barbecue on three types of greens, green leaf, lettuce, flat leaves, parsley, and cilantro. So if you made the best barbecue in the world and presented it on collard greens, it would be illegal or disqualified. So uh, after that, they bring out barbecue so you can get the hang of scoring. Uh, and and uh, they also bring out something purposely illegal, right? Just to see if you would catch that. And if right. you don't, they would say, well, Adrian, you should have noticed this. Uh, and then you stand up and you take a barbecue oath. Um, and it's a sacred thing, and I don't repeat it in public because I know some people are going to mock it. Uh, and then after that, a few weeks later, you get your badge in the mail. And, and with that badge, you can go judge in any uh, Kansas City Barbecue Society competition. Um, the thing is, when I, was a, when I became a judge, there weren't many of us at that point. So it wasn't hard to become a judge in a competition. But now uh, barbecue is so popular and judges are so numerous that to be able to judge a contest is almost like hitting the lottery. But I got to tell you, it's the best conversation I've ever I've ever had. You know, people like, oh, you worked in the White House. OK, that's nice. But you're a barbecue judge. I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> I could imagine. I mean, people like talking about barbecue. So that would be like the ultimate conversation starter. Now, you also served on the board of the Southern Foodways Alliance, an organization I'm very excited about. Can you tell us about how you came to work with the Alliance? Yeah. So um, after I had decided I'm going to write this book on the history of soul food, my 
I decided I needed to just grab as much information as I could about African-American food traditions. So I was just um, on um, the computer, search, browsing the internet, and uh, I came across this thing, the Southern Foodways Alliance. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And I was looking at it and it wasn't clear to me how to join as an individual. Um, so I reached out to the, the guy who still runs it, uh, John T. Edge, and we had an exchange and, um, and that, you know, I, to his credit, he just asked me, hey, so why are you interested in the SFA? And I said, oh, well, I'm thinking about writing this book on the history of soul food. He's like, oh, well, you ought to come to some of our programs. Uh, and for those who are not familiar with the Southern Foodways Alliance, it's based in um, at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi. And uh, its mission is to celebrate the diverse food cultures of the American South. And program-wise, they have a, a symposium every fall at Oxford, and then they have programming throughout the year. Uh, but the, one of the big things is they have a field trip where they, uh, and it ties into the theme, the annual theme of the symposium, and you go a certain place. So my first uh, involvement with the SFA um, was going to Austin, Texas, because that was 2002, and the theme was barbecue. So I went to Austin, Texas, and basically ate barbecue for three days. That was three of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> I can imagine. Can we talk about your book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of the American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time? That was a winner of a James Beard Foundation Award for Scholarship and Reference in 2014. Can we talk about that book and how you came to write it? Yeah. So um, I, at first, when I reached, when I, when I was going to write about African-American food traditions, I reached out to a lot of uh, noted Black food writers just to see verify that what Mr. Edgerton told me was true, that nobody had really done the grand work. Uh, Cause I, I was just thinking like somebody has had, you know, somebody must have done this and you know, that wasn't the case. And now what a lot of these food writers told me is they said, well, you know, you can write this book and you can do all the research, but you know, there's just not a lot of information out there because the, this country is racist and black cooks have never really been celebrated. So, you know, cobble together the best book you can with limited resources. So I thought, okay, so I didn't think it was going to take me long to write the book because I just thought there's only so much information out there. Now, um, these food writers didn't know about this newfangled thing called the Internet. Um, and so when I got on the Internet, I quickly had enough information to write five books. So um, the original vision was a book that would be a third cooks, a third about the culture, and a third about the cuisine. Um, you know, with the understanding that there wasn't a lot you know, out there. Um, with all of this information, I thought, well, let me just write about soul food because that's the most recognizable aspect of uh, African-American food traditions to, to, in my mind. And so to research the book, I read um, 3,500 oral histories of formerly enslaved people. I read about 500 cookbooks, not all of them authored by African-Americans because I wanted to put soul food in, in a context, culinary context. I read thousands of newspaper and magazine articles uh, because we have companies that are now digitizing these old sources and their words searchable. Um, <clears throat> and I uh, talked to hundreds of people about what they thought soul food is, was, will be. Uh, and then because I cared so much about my subject, I decided to eat my way through the country. So I went to 35 uh, cities in 15 states and ate in 150 soul food restaurants. Wow. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people are surprised I'm still alive. I guess I am too. <laughs> So uh, with all that information, the way I decided to do it is I thought, well, let me just create a representative soul food meal and write a chapter about every part of the meal and explain how I got on the plate, what it means for soul food culture, 
uh, and um, I also provided uh, recipes. So traditional, health conscious, and um, fancy ones in case you wanted to show off as a cook. So the, the ultimate meal that was presented in my book was entrees would be fried chicken, uh, catfish, and chitlins. And for those who don't know what chitlins are, that's a contraction of chitterlings, which are intestines, uh, usually pig intestines that are either stewed or fried. Side dishes were greens, um, black eyed peas, mac and cheese, and candy jams, which were sweet potatoes. Wrote about cornbread, wrote about hot sauce. I wrote a chapter about red drink because I believe red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. Um, and then I, I couldn't decide on any dessert in particular, so I wrote about four. Pound cake, peach cobbler, banana pudding, and sweet potato pie. Nice. Now, you mentioned that nobody had written anything about this before. Do you think it wasn't so much that people didn't want to write about it, or was it more publishing? Was publishing kind of like not going for the idea of the book on this nature? Yeah, I think the closest thing that was done is Jessica B. Harris, who is kind of acknowledged as the grand dame of, of African-American food writing, was wrote a book called The Welcome Table in, 19, in the mid-1980s, which was kind of a collection of African-American food traditions. And she added some historical context, but nobody had really taken a scholarly approach. And I, I do believe that it had something to do with publishing because all of the hater aid that I got from publishers when I um, approached them with my idea of uh, so many people like, oh, nobody's going to read this book. Uh, nobody wants to read. Nobody wants a scholarly treatment of soul food. Um, you know, Jesus. and then, yeah. And the other thing was um, because I was a fairly new writer, I think there was lack of confidence in me. So I remember one publisher was just like, yeah, you know, you've only written for newspapers. So why don't you go write for some major publications and other and then come back. And, um, you know, it was, it was interesting because I would be in these conversations with publishers, but their younger publish, uh, publishing assistants who were in the conversation, I could tell that they were digging the project and wanted to go for it, but the seasoned, you know, person didn't want to want to do it. So um, I think that had a lot to do with it. And it's frustrating because um, the vibe was this, hey, there's already a book on soul food out there. So why would anybody want to you know, put out another one, even though the books that were out there by the time I was writing were 20 years old. Um, and, and, and it's mystifying because look how many books come out with about French food, Italian food, Chinese food, you know, name the cuisine. They, they're like four or five books every year. <laughs> but African-Americans can only get one book or zero. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, I think the, the, the attitudes that publishers had towards the subject was definitely a factor. Now, what do you think people get wrong about the term soul food? Because I've heard it bandied about through my life. I remember even like being young and, um, you know, a talk show host like Dinah Shore would have referred to her cooking as soul food, quote unquote. Like, what do you think people get wrong on the term and misuse it? Yeah, so I think soul food is a coined term is something very specific. I think it is the food that African-Americans took outside of the South and transplanted in other parts of the country. Now, you have to understand that before the 1960s, all of this food was called Southern cooking because uh, it was more tied to the region than to race or anything like that. So what happens in the mid 60s is you get African-Americans making a conscious divorce from that cuisine and saying, no, what we do is something unique in particular. And, and there's an argument for that, but um, you know that's when we start to see soul food as black food and Southern food as white food. Um, so what some of the things that people get wrong is I think um, soul food has now become a generic term for any kind of poor 
poor folks cooking or peasant cooking. And I understand why they do that. But to me, it soulfully was a very specific coin term tied to African-Americans. I think the other thing that people get wrong is that soul food is often the catch-all phrase for all African-American cooking. Right. And I think that's incorrect too, because I think um, though related, the cooking of the low country, you know, the Gullah Geechee cooking, the cooking of the Creoles in Alabama, uh, in Louisiana, in Mississippi, I think that those are different things. So, um, you know, I, I would like to have more, a little bit more precision. Um, but I think it's one of the great, greatest marketing terms ever. And I think that's why other people call it, you know, other people outside Black culture claim it as something. Um, another thing that I think people get wrong is um, this idea, two things, is this uh, idea that soul food is inherently unhealthy. And a lot of my work has been to parse out that, hey, soul food is complex. There are certainly celebratory aspects of it, um, but there's also, you know, kind of pedestrian, uh, vernacular, whatever term you want to use, daily cooking that actually can be quite healthy. Um, if you think about uh, the fried chicken, the barbecue, the glorious cakes and the biscuits, that's celebration food, that's special occasion food that was not meant to be eaten on the regular. Um, and uh, soul food includes a lot of vegetables, the greens, the black eyed peas and things like that. So think about what nutritionists are telling us to eat now. Yeah. More dark leafy greens, more sweet potatoes, right? More high hibiscus. Okra is now a superfood. These are the things that are the building blocks of soul food. And I think the other thing that people get wrong is that uh, soul food is just slave food. It's just the food that white people didn't want. Yeah. And that doesn't bear out e either. Um, there's certainly a lot of white people who ate similar food or the same food. And um, one of the biggest surprises and takeaways from my research is that when you're looking at these food traditions in the South, it's really more about place and class than it is about race. For the most part, part Blacks and whites of the same socioeconomic class in a place are eating the same foods. Now, because of racial norms and segregation and prejudice and all these other things, they're not eating together, but they're eating similar foods. Now, um, I've noticed that like many, like you could you could see quote unquote Italian food in many chains, like Olive Garden. There are a lot of Mexican restaurant chains, you know, Chinese food chains, you know, but you don't see any soul food chains. What do you, why do you think that is? And I wish I had the answer to that question because that's been perplexing me for a decade now. Um, you know, I, I used to think, hey, it's just that uh, African-Americans don't have adequate capital um, to franchise. But I talked to some experienced business people and they said, now, <clears throat> getting the capital to franchise is not really a problem anymore. And, and I, you know, these are guys in the business telling me this. That, that's news to me. Um, I think part of it is a uh, lack of experience with that kind of business model. Um, I know that there are several African-American entrepreneurs that believe they have to be in the restaurant in order to maintain the quality. Um, and of course, if you're franchising, you know, that that's just not possible, right? You have right. to train other people and trust them. Yeah. So I think, it's, I think it's a cultural thing. Um, I do think lack of access to capital is a barrier. Yeah. Um, but um, that is one that's been perplexing. And I know that there are a couple of people that have been trying to do that and just never succeeded. The most famous example is uh, James Brown. Oh, uh, I don't know if you know that, but he had. I a, didn't know that. No. Yeah. He had a restaurant chain. He was starting it was James Brown's Golden Platter. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if there was ever a dude that 
should be able to make that happen. It, 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 it just didn't happen. And then gospel singer Mahalia Jackson actually was involved in a fried chicken chain that expanded to several cities, but it just didn't last. Yeah, I mean, you could almost do a book on uh, celebrities making uh, restaurants because I've heard of other celebrities making restaurants. Uh, and it's an interesting phenomenon. I always, that would be kind of a fun book, I think. Yeah. We talked about your second book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. Yeah, so that book, uh, uh, and really um, the barbecue book as well, uh, sprang out of my research for the soul food book. So as I was just grabbing all the information that I could, I came across a few stories of African-Americans who had cooked for presidents. And I thought, man, this is fascinating. But it was only about, you know, four or six stories, right? And that's not enough to anchor a book because yeah. as much, even though you've, they're identified, there's not a lot written about them. So I just, after I finished the soul food book, I said, okay, I'm just going to see how much I can find on these folks. And in my own research, I identified 150 African-American presidential cooks slash chefs, uh, all the way from President o. Washington to the current administration. So every, Af every president has had an African-American cook for them in some capacity. If it wasn't in the White House kitchen, then it, um, an African-American was cooking for them when they traveled. You know, for years, that was the presidential train, but then on Air Force One. Um, and then you also had African-Americans um, would cook for presidents when they would go to someplace else and stay for an extended period of time. Uh, especially because not only in the South, but a lot around the country, a lot of people had black cooks. And in order to ingratiate themselves with the presidential family, they would loan their cook to the president when the president was visiting, or they would just invite the president over and have them cook uh, for the president. So, um, yeah, so I was I was glad uh, and blessed to have the opportunity to write that collective biography. And I'm only scratching the surface because um, records were not accurately kept. Um, and there were a couple of fires and key moments in White House history that probably destroyed a lot of personnel files that may have um, indicated other cooks. So most of the people that I found were through newspapers um, mentioning these cooks. And then um, I did go to the presidential libraries and look, and, but those were hit and miss because food was not always valued as a historical record. And yeah. so, you know, um, the best food library for foodies is the Carter Library. Oh, wow, really? Like They've kept the menus for every single day that the Carters were in the White House. So you can look and see everything they ate on a particular day. And what's really cool is that sometimes you get marginal notes from Rosalind Carter. Uh, I just remember one I remember in particular, she's like uh, scratched out something. She's and she said, Jimmy doesn't like peas. Oh, <laughs> now, what were some of your favorite stories from this book? Or did you have any favorite cooks that you really liked their story? Um, so the early cooks, I really was fascinated by Hercules, uh, who was the enslaved cook of George Washington. And I got to tell you, I'm, su I'm surprised that nobody, um, there, I think there's more interest in doing a um, television or movie treatment of him. Uh, so enslaved cook who um, is purchased by the Washingtons as a teenager, and he was a boat ferryman, but they, trans, uh, they transfer him to the kitchen for whatever reason. So he apprentices under an old longtime cook named Old Dahl. Um, and when Washington becomes president, he's the main cook. And... Um, the White House, well, it wasn't the White House. The White House was under construction. So the the president was actually in Philadelphia while D.C. was being constructed in the White House. And so um, 
when the president lived there, uh, he hired a white woman to do his cooking, but I guess she didn't, I guess the food was straight nasty because she only lasted a few months. <laughs> so um, Hercules gets moved up from uh, Mount Vernon to Philadelphia. That was one big problem. Um, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania had this law called the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780, which said if you're an African-American enslaved person, uh, an enslaved person in Pennsylvania soil, and you are there for six months or longer, you're free. So what Washington does to get around this is that around the six month deadline, he would just um, pack up all the enslaved people uh, working for him in Philadelphia and take them out of state and renew the clock and then bring them back. And he does this throughout his presidency. But um, Hercules is acclaimed. Um, there's some, we have some stuff written about him. People liked his food. There's mentions of him in, in people's diaries, um, but he ends up escaping successfully. And that's not something that always happened to George Washington. And um, for a long time, understandably, he was lost to history. And um, lately, some crack researchers have found out that he made his way to Manhattan and worked as a restaurant chef until his death in May of 1812. Wow, that would be a great story. I'd love to see that done. Yep. Another person I really like to talk about is James Hemings, who was an older brother of, not the oldest, but an older brother of Sally Hemings who we know um, had several kids um, by uh, Thomas Jefferson. So when um, Hemings was a teenager, he was he's also trained as a classical French chef while Jefferson serves as minister to France. So basically he's the US ambassador to France. And um, Jefferson was definitely a gourmand. And so he spends an exorbitant amount of money to have Hemings trained as a chef and um, installs him as the chef de cuisine at his uh, apartment off the Champs-Elysees. Nice. Yeah. And so he comes back to U.S. Um, and then in 1796, he approaches Jefferson and says, I want to be free. And Jefferson agrees on two conditions, that Hemings teaches other people, uh, enslaved cooks at Monticello, his home in Virginia, how to cook, because he doesn't want to spend all that money again, right, to train somebody to be a chef. And he leaves behind some recipes. And Hemings does this and Jefferson frees him. And so he goes on to, uh, it's, it's unclear what he does right after that, but eventually he lands in Baltimore. And I personally am convinced that Hemings would have been invited to be uh, Jefferson's White House chef had he not committed um, suicide or he drank himself to death. So it's unclear whether he committed suicide, but he ended up drinking himself to death and died an early uh, death at age 36. Um, yeah. To a couple other people I mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, is um, Laura Johnson, who's known as Dolly Johnson. She is a free woman who becomes uh, Benjamin Harrison's cook. And she's really the first cook, African-American, who gets national headlines um, blaring when she's hired. Oh. Um, yeah. And um, the only problem was there was already a white woman um, named Madame Pelgunard, who was cooking for the White House. She, she was previously cooking for the British, British embassy and uh, she was already in the kitchen. And so um, she was not too happy about these headlines. And so she ends up suing um, President Harrison for kind of like wrongful discharge. So this is the only the first case for sure of a White House employee suing uh, the you know, the president. It all gets worked out, but I thought it was really interesting. I tell people that this was kind of similar to the uh, situation on The Bachelor when that guy you know proposed to one woman but really liked another. Um, 
So, uh, but it all gets worked out. And she only stays about six months or so because her daughter back in Lexington, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky gets ill. So she goes back to care for her daughter. But when Grover Cleveland gets elected, he brings her back to the White House. So that just tells you how uh, highly sought after she was. And after her stand in the White House, she ends up opening um, a restaurant in Lexington, Kentucky, and boldly trades off her name as a, as a former White House cook. So uh, I think that's just amazing. Uh, a last person I'll tell you about is uh, Zephyr Wright, who was the longtime cook for Lyndon Johnson. Um, one, so many great things to say about her, but one, one thing that's really poignant is when Johnson is uh, trying to carry Kennedy's legacy and push through the 1964 Civil Rights Act, um, he often used uh, Zephyr Wright's Jim Crow experiences in the South as um, you know, um, evidence to marshal support for that bill. Uh, because wow. the, the family would drive back and forth from central Texas to Washington. And along the way, Zephyr Wright would be forced to go to the bathroom in the woods. Um, she couldn't eat with the family. And she uh, suffered so many indignities that she just stayed in Washington full round. She's just like, I'm not, I'm not driving back and forth with y'all. So um, when the bill goes through and they have the signing ceremony, um, Johnson presents her one of the pens that he signed uh, the bill with and says, you deserve this as much as anyone. That's pretty cool. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. latest book, Black Smoke, Amer African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue, came out last year. Can you talk a little bit about the book and how it came, and how you came to write it? Yeah, so um, I'd always endeavored to write about barbecue. I thought it was going to be a chapter in the soul food book, but eventually I said, no, this really needs its own treatment. And so um, in 2004, I am watching the Food Network and I see this commercial for something called Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue. And I thought, okay, I'm going to watch this show because I'll find out the latest on barbecue and the personalities and trends, that sort of thing. So I watched the show and, and 60 minutes later when the credits are rolling, uh, no African-Americans were featured on the show. And I was like, okay, how does this happen in 2004? And then the second thing I thought is, well, I go, well maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian Barbecue. And I just didn't pay <laughs> close attention to the promo. Uh, so then I started looking at other TV shows on the Food Network and other places, and it was the same story. Either no African-Americans featured or African-Americans were bit players. And that is just crazy. Anybody who knows anything about the American South and barbecue knows that uh, African-Americans were pivotal to that. And I shouldn't say everybody, because clearly, because of now, by that time, I was looking at least a decade, and then it would go on for a decade more of coverage that essentially just featured white dudes. Uh, I don't think people now know how much African-Americans had contributed to barbecue. So Black Smoke is really a celebration of African-American barbecue culture and a thump on the head to say, look, if you're going to talk about 
barbecue culture in the United States, you have to include African-Americans. So it's a restoration of African-Americans to the barbecue story. Uh, and, and just to add on that, the way I wrote the book is I, rather than do a kind of plotting chronological history of barbecue, I, I do theme, I, it's thematic. And what I do is in a lot of the chapters, I explore a theme, like for instance, there's a whole theme about church barbecue. Um, I call that chapter bar burnt offerings because um, barbecue has been distracting to my spiritual journey. Every time I read the Bible and I see a reference to burnt offerings, I start thinking about barbecue, um, <laughs> you know, and the burning bush story, you know, I wondered did, to Moses, did it smell like oak or hickory? You know, those kind of things. Um, and then what I try to do is uh, include one or two people who are um, interesting figures from barbecue history who evoke the themes of that chapter. And then I also include recipes as well. Now, what kind of research did you do for Black Smoke? So Black Smoke uh, was primarily newspaper um, research because you don't, you're not gonna find a lot of African-Americans in cookbooks. Um, and so newspapers were very good about capturing the daily life of their community. And so by the time we get to the early 1800s, you're having barbecues on a grand scale and it's been interesting to see how barbecue writing has kind of changed over the course of the 19th century. Because in the early years, it was pretty spare. It was just like, hey, barbecue held this place, um, this many people, these are the hosts, and maybe a description of what was served. But over time, you start to get more details about, well, who are the cooks? Um, what exactly did they cook? Um, and description of the, of the process. And then by the time we get to the late 1800s, you're actually having these barbecue cooks interviewed and named. Um, and in the course of American history, at least in newspapers, it's it was not common to have an African-American named because of black status in this country. These people weren't re worthy of recognition. So you might get at most their first name and then usually uncle you know, or auntie put in front of it, which is kind of derogatory. So it, it's just been interesting to see how that changed. So by the time we get to their 20th century, any article talking about barbecue, um, and there were certainly white people involved in barbecue. I'm not trying to say black cooks were exclusive to it, but right. it, it was clear that African-Americans dominated this trade. Um, and so if you're gonna write an article about barbecue, it would be really weird to leave black people out. And that was the case until we, in, uh, well into the 1980s. If you look at some TV shows and some of the, we're going to go around the country and write about barbecue books, a lot of African-Americans mentioned. And this uh, undergoes a sharp change in the 1990s when the shift moves to the focus on white people, especially white men. Now, you talked in your book about the effects of racism and lack of financial resources, making it hard for Black-owned barbecue businesses to thrive historically. And this is up to the current time. Can we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, so we, we, know, we know several things. We know that there's a wealth gap in this country. And so African-Americans tend to make less on the dollar, a dollar uh, compared to whites and have less accumulated wealth. And so when you think about starting a business, how often do you do that? You, you think about your own savings. You think about you know, getting credit. And so often you have to have collateral. And so your house can be collateral for that. And you have private networks, right? There are people you can go to. And um, sometimes there are people in your own family and there are also people in private equity. So we know that African-Americans because of redlining practices have tended to have homes that are worth less 
than their white counterparts. We know that there's a wealth gap. So, you know, um, not going to have as much accumulated wealth. So they're not going to be able to borrow as much money as anyone. Um, and then uh, because these things exacerbate in throughout the black community, their private, you know, re family relationships may not be able to yield that money. And then typically because of social circles and other things, they don't have access to the big money in private equity, right? right. Um, and then the restaurant business is hard anyway. So it's not like a lot of banks want to get give out money for this thing where most businesses fail within two to three years. So all of those things I think are a factor. Now that wasn't the case in the early years of barbecue when you just had a barbecue shack or stand. Um, and in some cases, a barbecue business was just digging a hole in your own backyard or even your front yard and just getting a pig and cooking it and then just selling it out until you know the pig, you know, selling it until you ran out of pork to sell. And that was your business. That's why a lot of the early barbecue business were pretty much weekend um, businesses that, you know, you just pretty much just um, sold what you had and, and it was limited basis. Um, you can start to see newspapers and others commenting on the growth of barbecue business where the, in the 1920s and then accelerating in the 1940s and 50s, you start to see a big business approach to barbecue. And some of the biggest chains that some that still exist today, today like Sonny's in uh, Florida, you know, that's one of the probably the, the first, if not um, first barbecue chain that um, starts to grow. There were certainly um, barbecue restaurants run by African-Americans, um, <clears throat> but they don't they're not numerous in terms of franchise opportunities. The only the only one I can think of that's like that now is the Gates family in Kansas City, which has several restaurants but even with the gates family they haven't expanded beyond kansas city area you know so um it's it's an interesting question as to we talked about uh, soul food franchises is another interesting question is why hasn't barbecue at least african-american owned barbecue restaurants why haven't they franchised either yeah and also on that note you know many Many um, barbecue operators will have a steady white clientele, but then the soul food restaurants, by comparison, won't. Why do you think that ha ha has happened historically? Yeah, so I think this goes back to kind of specialized skill that's associated with barbecue. So when you talk about soul food, <clears throat> again, a lot of white people were eating very similar food. So um, if a black entrepreneur had a wide reputation, I could see maybe having a white clientele. Um, in certain situations. But I think barbecue was a very specialized skill. And to get the very best stuff, I mean, you know, I think it was just understood that, hey, you got you got to go to one of the brothers who are cooking. And so I think white customers were more willing to go into the black part of town to get barbecue from an African-American because the, the competitive advantage or at least the mystique of the African-American barbecue was so strong that, you know, there was certainly white people making barbecue and they did well. But I think it was just understood that, hey, the very best stuff is going to be made by this African-American cook. Um, so I think that that accounts for the difference because you, you see a level of white patronage that you really don't see with soul food joints. Um, and even to this day, I, I think you see that barbecue is just seen differently than soul food. Um, I think barbecue is just seen as more mainstream than soul food is. Now, in your book, you talk about the theology of barbecue. Can we talk about that? Yeah, so um, one of the one of my thematic chapters, I really wanted to delve into this idea of 
Um, how does barbecue play out in interesting ways in African-American culture and certainly in uh, church barbecue. So we have um, a lot of accounts of barbecue in the antebellum South, uh, typically uh, on plantations. Um, it was a time um, usually associated with when the crop work had slowed down. So that could be on the weekends or during certain times of the year. And we find that a lot of people associated barbecue with spiritual practices. And it wasn't more like barbecue is associated with worship, like the, the burnt offerings of, of yesteryear, but it was more about building community um, after the, the worship service was done or after church was done. Um, <clears throat> in the 19th century, there were two leaders who really figured out that barbecue can draw, draw a crowd. And those were politicians and preachers. And so um, there was something called a revival or camp meeting. And these yes. would be multi-day um, events that happened in the rural parts of a, of a state. And it was a y'all come kind of thing. And so, you know, in order to keep people, uh, keep people's attention and keep them involved for those, those days, there was certainly an aspect of having fantastic food. And although it, it wasn't like people were on equal terms, but this was a situation where uh, enslaved Africans and later enslaved African-Americans saw, a, got a glimpse of radical hospitality, a Christian um, concept, not solely, but certainly plays out in the religion that there's no respect of persons here. <clears throat> this is a y'all come and everybody is welcome and everybody is loved because so much of um, the theology that was presented to enslaved people was obey your masters and you'll get your reward in the afterlife. So the good life wasn't going to come until the afterlife. And here was a situation where people saw the good life and saw that they were in a situation where they were more accepted than maybe they were on the plantation. And so I, I believe that that had an effect on African-Americans and uh, instilled um, instilled the momentum for the black church, with, which would become the earliest black run institu institution in this country. And even after emancipation, barbecue played a key, key role in um, the social life of a, of a sacred community and building that community and, and just people keeping people connected. And that gets transplanted in the um, urban areas as people migrated out of the South. So I just thought um, that concept of, of radical hospitality is key to the theology of barbecue because barbecue um, in before the 20th century was whole animal cooking exclusively. And that meant you need a lot of the people, right? Cause you didn't have refrigeration. So you had to bring a lot of people together to yell that food so it wouldn't go bad. Yeah. Now I grew up in the suburbs of San Diego. So we didn't have low and slow. We had like quick and burnt for our barbecue mostly it was usually bad stuff and the only time i ever got anything close to real barbecue until i was an adult was at southern baptist labor day barbecues where they would put a pig in ashes overnight etc and they'd have the vinegar based sauce and stuff like that but i got to go to the south extensively as an adult and, and try real barbecue i think most americans though have a concept like if it's got barbecue sauce slapped on it ridiculously it's barbecue what do you think we get wrong as a country about it yeah so <laughs> man there's so much there um so yeah that that starts in the um 1800s with the printing of cookbooks because um you know you couldn't do whole animal cooking in a lot of contexts and so that's where we start to get the advent of cooking smaller cuts 
and then adding this barbecue sauce and everything was called barbecued. So you start to see that in cookbooks in the 1800s. So yeah, one thing um, I think people need to understand is that there are more than one way, there's more than one way to cook barbecue. Um, but in before the 20th century, barbecue was digging a trench, filling that trench up with hardwood coals, burning those coals down, and then cooking whole animals. And it didn't have to be pigs, it could be cows, and they would be quartered if they were cows because they're so big goats or sheep, um, chickens, and then uh, cooking them over that, directly over that heat, and then basting them with a vinegar-based sauce. That was the earliest barbecue sauce. Um, in the early 20th century, we get a transition as barbecue moves from a rural context to an urban context. That's where we start to get that emphasis on cooking smaller cuts of meat. And then um, the various traditions um, evolve. So, I think one thing that people get wrong is thinking there's one way to cook. I mean, you can have your favorite type of barbecue, but thinking there's one way to cook. And then also, I would argue that people get it wrong thinking that barbecue should not have sauce. Um, and I think the sauce uh, hues to regional uh, traditions, but this idea that barbecue should be unsauced is a more recent thing. And I think it's the advent of the influence of, or the influence of Texas barbecue, because that's, that's more indirect cooking and not really direct cooking. And the idea is that, hey, the, the flavor of the meat should stand for itself. You don't need this sauce. And I, I think there's certainly ways that um, people can create a sauce and have it with, pair it with their barbecue and have it enhance the experience. Because there, there's a reason why certain sauces are paired with certain barbecue. Now, um, barbecue sauce in and of itself is very controversial and everybody's got their own sauce now guy when you go to the store you see whole aisles devoted to barbecue sauce what do you think we get wrong about it as a country like when people talk about it because like you said i've had many different types of sauce i've had the vinegar based sauces i've had the white sauces i've had golden sauces how do we what, what do you think the differences are and what do you think the miscommunication is on this well, I think it's because um, just a lot of people don't know barbecue history. And so, um, you know, the, the, the standard sauce you get in the store, the thick tomato based sauce, yeah. you know, a lot of people call that a Kansas City sauce. And it, it, it's reminiscent of one, but I wouldn't say that's that's exactly um, accurate. Um, so that's one thing. Um, another thing is when you I think a lot of people have an attitude about the vinegar based sauces. But if you know barbecue history, it wasn't those were not thought of as condiments. I mean, the, the Eastern North Carolina barbecue sauce, these vinegar-based sauces were something you applied to the animal you were cooking throughout the cooking process. Right. So it added a dimension of flavor, right? And so this idea that we think of it just as a condiment now is a little bit crazy. So what, what drives me nuts is to go to all these barbecue places, and this is the trend now. Uh, you know, you go to a barbecue place, they cook their meat all the same way. And then you go to your table and you can customize it to a regional style. And I, I just think that belies tradition. Now, you know, in some cases it is a condiment in certain places, but in other places it's part of the cooking process. And so I wish there was a little bit more, uh, what, what should I say, discernment uh, when it came to, to barbecue sauces. Uh, and then the other thing is um, we, we like to put all of these sauces into nice categories, but you'll, there's a little more variation than people think. I think we oversimplify. You know, um, sometimes there's, there's some places where you, simplicity works because it's accurate, like Eastern North Carolina, Western North Carolina has a little more tomato base. But when you get to a place like South Carolina, you've got multiple sauce traditions. So just to say South Carolina is a mustard sauce, 
Nah, yeah, that's part of the story, but not the whole story. Now, I've heard about regional rivalries in barbecue. Can you tell us about this and what states are competitive? Oh, man. So, you know, the ones that talk the most junk are Texans, and that's part of their culture. But yeah. you got to yeah. give it to Texans. They're the best cheerleaders because um, Central Texas barbecue, especially, is the dominant uh, form of barbecue now. That's the one that people love. That's the one that people are cooking. And most new restaurants are, um, in terms of look and feel and everything, are evoking that style. But um, I, th I think the biggest ones uh, are the North, are the Carolinas. So you've got, and within the state, you've got East North Carolina people arguing with West North Carolina people. South Carolina people throw there something in the mix. But I think Memphis, Kansas City, and Central Texas are the ones that are probably the fiercest um, in terms of their adherence and their boosters and, and you know the, the, the styles that people love the most. Do you have a favorite type? Uh, mine is Kansas City. I think that's a function of growing up in Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. So um, that was the closest regional style, but I'm a spare rib guy. So that's why for me, it's, it's Kansas City first and then Memphis because those are spare rib dominant. And I, I just love spare ribs. This may be a dumb question, but I want to ask, um, do you barbecue yourself? Do you yourself cook barbecue? I do, but on a very limited basis because I live in a high rise condo. So I don't, yeah. because of the fire code, I can't really do what I want. So I cook on the holidays and I go to my father's place and I cook off a double barrel oil drum smoker. So very, very old school. I don't have any temperature gauges. I don't have any probes. I don't have any syringes. And I certainly don't have Wi-Fi <laughs> to help me cook this stuff. So I just got a barbecue grill for the first time this Christmas. Um, never done it before. Going to foray into it myself. So. I don't want to repeat my father's uh, quick and burnt barbecue, so I'm going to be very careful and read up on it first. Do you have any recommendations of authors for this? Wow. So Stephen Rachelin, um, you know, his books are good. Um, there's a guy named Dr. Barbecue who's good. But seriously, man, you can get almost anything off the Internet now. True. So uh, AmazingRibs.com is a good compilation source. Um. Rodney Scott has a new barbecue out. So after Americans, um, if you're interested in whole hog, you know, there's uh, Sam Jones has a barbecue book out. So those are the ones that I think of uh, right now. Very cool. Adrian, I want to thank you for being on the show. You've been a wonderful guest and I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. I want to urge um, people um, to go seek out your books. You can get them all online on Amazon or other um, book vendors. Also, you can get them at the local library as well. Adrian, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. That was my conversation with Adrian Miller, food historian, um, barbecue um, judge, and author of Black Smoke, Soul Food, and The President's Kitchen Cabinet. Uh, all those books are available through book distributors like Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. Come back on Monday when we talk with Zuza Zak, who is the author of Amber and Rye and the book Polska. She's a celebrated author in the UK and somebody who's written some wonderful cookbooks. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to Zuza, and I think you're going to love the um, interview that I had with her. So please tune in on Monday for that. In the meantime, I hope you have a great weekend and keep cooking.